Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. You have never failed. And you didn't bring us this far for us to turn away, turn around, and leave defeated. So Jesus, help us hear from you. Give me clarity of mind and thought. Give me an honest, open heart to obey what I preach. And may you be loved and trusted. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. We are returning to the Gospel of Luke. If you're joining us for the first time, or it's been a first time in a long time, quite a while ago we committed to walk with Jesus through the Gospel of Luke. And we've reached in this long journey in which we've taken a lot of breaks and studied other sections of Scripture, talked about other topics. We've reached Luke 17. But if you're here for the first time joining us online, we'd love to know that. Use the website or our Facebook page, Crosspoint HB, to let us know that you're here. I welcome your private messages as well through social media. However you choose to do it, through an email address or a message or right there in the chat room environment uh, in this online service, just let us know that you're here. And particularly, if there's anything we can do to serve you, please let us know. In Luke 17, Jesus is going to lay down the terms of discipleship. And it's going to be hard for us as 21st century Americans sometimes to understand and really trust Jesus with one of the assumptions in what he's saying. Jesus is going to speak using we language. He's going to speak about community. He's speaking to his disciples and very specifically to his apostles. You're going to see eventually in the passage But it's going to be hard for us in this fiercely individualistic, I look out for myself, I take responsibility for myself, I do what I want in a culture that made up corporate slogans like, you can have it your way, in a world-famous company that gives us the iPhone, not the Wii phone, the iPhone, and yes, I understand it stands for internet, but I think it works on two levels, at least in the United States. It's going to be hard for us to trust Jesus and reorient ourselves to the language of community and taking loving responsibility for each other. And I don't know about you, but I've had many occasions to be blessed by people undeservedly who in my life have started thinking in terms of we, and they've included my struggles, my needs, my cause as part of their own responsibility, and they've given me some of their strength and some of their care, not because it had anything to do with them, but because they cared about me. When my wife and children and I were missionaries in Mexico, it came time after several years to make, for the first time, a report to our supporting churches here in the United States, beginning with this one. And a young man in the church embarked purely at his initiative into the very complicated task, especially with the technology available back then, of making a video to show in all of our churches. He was a professional sign maker. I was a seminary graduate. So imagine those two guys trying to make a video that looks somewhat professional. And it was all on him. I had pictures, and I knew the story, but the production was entirely on his shoulders, which is why it was so disappointing when we worked on the final night. We worked for about nine hours, and at two in the morning, I don't know if technology's ever done this to you. It does it to me on a regular basis. Everything crashed. 
And the work of five days was gone just like that. And my heart sank, and I just put my head down. I remember I put my chin down on my chest because I knew that was, that was it. And he turned to me after about a five count of silence and said, well, he said, I, I, need, I really do need to get some sleep. What time can you be back here so we can start again? And we did. And it was easier the second time. It still took about another nine hours of work to rebuild everything, but we got that video done. It's in my office right now, and every time I look at it, I'm reminded of someone who loved me enough to say, we have to do this. And that's the way it is with love. Love always says, we. And you can watch for that when people discuss the company they work for, their families, their friends. Watch the pronouns. They'll tell you a great deal. I is the voice of selfishness. You is the voice of accusation and blame shifting. But a loving person says we. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples with some struggles and with some fears, as you're going to see in Luke 17. If you'll turn with me there, please, in Luke chapter 17, I'm going to begin the, uh, to read this passage, and along the way, we're going to encounter three commitments that we, the disciples of Jesus, make to each other because love always says we. Luke 17, verse 1 says this, and he, that's Jesus, he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than, he, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. That's one of the heaviest things that Jesus said. He said, in this world filled with temptation, filled with selfish desires, filled with evil that is real, and a tempter that always stalks believers, temptations to sin are always going to be with you. You are going to be under continuous danger of being deceived and of falling down. But Jesus says, woe to the one through whom they come. And the Greek here uh, literally says a stumbling block. In other words, people are sure, we are sure to fall into sin, but woe is you, poor you, if you're the reason that someone stumbles and falls into sin. Listen to the severity of verse 2. It would be better for him. In other words, it would be better for the person who leads another person into sin if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Who are these little ones? That's one of the first things I ask myself studying this passage. Well, Jesus in the previous chapters has been talking to people who are far from God, who are coming close to him, who are being welcomed and loved and received for the first time in their lives. The religious establishment has cast them out and judged them. But Jesus actually acts like not only does he love them, but he likes them. And he's opening up the good news that he himself is going to die for sinners and they too have a part in the family of God. And Jesus is gathering up this community of faithful disciples and he tells these disciples, listen, temptations and falling into sin, that's going to be constant. 
But woe is you, poor you, if you're the reason one of these new believers, one of these followers is the one who falls into sin. Rather than you lead someone else into sin, it would be better for you if someone tied a millstone around your neck, threw you into the sea. Violent image. A millstone is a giant heavy stone pulled along by an animal that was used for grinding. Jesus is saying it would be better for you to have a concrete necklace and fall off the pier into the ocean and drown than for you to be responsible for another person to fall into sin. And then he says in verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. This is very countercultural, as I said, because we've created a uniquely individualistic, I'll worry about me, you worry about you society. But Jesus says that the first commitment of a disciple of Jesus is we take sin very seriously. We're protective of one another, we're serious about the dangers of sin. Sin's deadly. The Bible says the soul that sins shall die. It was sin that took Jesus to the cross because only his death could atone for it. Only the death of the Son of God could cover sin. That's how fatal it is. Anytime you think straying away from God and doing your own thing and disobeying God's wisdom and holiness and law is a matter of little importance. It's a casual thing that you're always welcome to do. Remember, Jesus died for sin and died for sinners. So his disciples need to take that seriously. We need to be protective of one another. And the commitment from one disciple to another, beginning in our own homes with our own children, should sound something like this. I'll do whatever it takes to safeguard your love for God. Moms, dads, grandparents, Small group leaders, disciplers, women's ministry leaders, men's ministry leaders, everyone across Crosspoint that has influence over somebody else's life, beginning in your own home, it's inevitable for the people you love to be tempted, but make sure that you are not the cause they fall into sin. Jesus says earthly death and a brutal earthly death would be better than to cause someone else to stop trusting and stop loving God. I'm a pastor, but that won't last forever. I'm a husband and a father first. I'm a Christian before even any of those things. And the most loving, faithful, loyal thing I can do in the way that I live my life for my wife and my children, for anyone in my sphere of influence as a friend or a pastor as a coworker in all these different hats that we all wear, the most faithful thing that I can do is live in such a way that helps them love and trust God. If the hypocrisy, if the harshness, if the unforgiveness, as we're going to see, of people that people may see in your life gives them a poor picture of God and helps them stray off the path from loving Him, it's a disaster. We've all been very touched in these days since the pandemic started of the simple hard work of strangers to keep the rest of us safe. I shop for my family and for a few other people in my circle that, that need help picking up groceries from time to time, and it, it always moves me a little bit 
to see a 17, 18-year-old kid outside the grocery store wearing a mask and gloves, a bottle of cleaner in his hand, carefully cart by cart by cart all day. I don't know how many hours he's going to spend sanitizing carts for strangers. Always touches me. It always moves me a little bit because I'm thinking a complete stranger is taking at least a small risk for himself so that I, who don't even know him, can be safe and go home to my family healthy. Why does he do that? Because the company has decided that the rest of us are worth protecting. The nurses and doctors who in a very real way encounter this disease are willing to step into that arena, taking precautions for themselves because of a simple, loving, professional obligation to care for someone else. Listen, the church should lead the way in being protective of one another, of looking out for one another. This is why Jesus said in verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. And then he starts talking about a second commitment. Verse 3, Luke 17, verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, and that's going to happen, Jesus says. He already said, sin is inevitable. Temptations to sin are sure to come. People are going to stumble and fall into sin. Just you be protective of the community. You be protective of your family. You be protective of your brother and sister. Make sure you're not the reason someone falls into sin. Pay attention to yourselves. And if your brother sins, as he inevitably will, rebuke him. There's that protection again. You're going to confront him and tell someone that you love that they are straying from God, not because you're judgmental, but because you are seeking to protect them. The goal of genuine love is always to bring people close together so that together we can love and trust the Lord. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. This is a second commitment in a dangerous, sin-filled world. Number two, we're forgiving. We're quick to welcome back the repentant. Because sin is so common and because stumbling and falling into it is inevitable on this side of heaven, we're going to protect and even rebuke, not to judge, but to try to bring a loved one who is straying back to God. And when he does, when he repents, we're going to welcome him back with joy. We're going to be quick to welcome him back and quick to announce and remind him what God has already said, that he's forgiven, that there's no shame, that there's no guilt, that the relationship has been restored, that the fellowship is, is, is close again. And that can be hard to do when people sin against you. We can get this wrong in so many ways. We may be tempted to withdraw and be Lone Ranger Christians take no responsibility toward the spiritual life of others. And when they sin, we may pull our hands away and say, well, that's up to them. That's between them and God. No, Jesus is saying it's not actually between them and God alone. They're sinning against God, but you are in their lives so that you can try to restore them and bring them back. And when they repent, forgive them. And it can be very tempting. I don't know if you've ever done it. It can be very tempting to hold a grudge and to be unwilling to extend to another person what God already granted them in Christ, which is forgiveness. Why don't we do that? Well, Jesus is going to explain. 
Pay attention to yourselves, verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And I wish we were here so I could get a genuine read, but I'll just ask you through the screen. Do you like verse 4? If your brother sins against you seven times in one day and seven times he genuinely, no hypocrisy, no manipulation, he genuinely comes to you in repentance and says to you, I repent. In other words, biblically, that means I'm making you turn. I was completely wrong. I was headed in the wrong direction. I am turning completely around. I'm coming back to you. I'm coming back to what is right. I am very sorry. Please forgive him. Jesus says if that happens with the same person seven times on a Tuesday, you must forgive him. You like it? Most people don't. Look what the Bible tells us. Look at the responsibility the Bible gives Christians in Ephesians 4, verse 32. Listen to this. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. How am I to forgive you? How are you to forgive me when I repent of the wrong I committed against you? I'm supposed to forgive you the same way God in Christ forgave me. It's the most transformational thing in the world. When I think of some of the mountaintop spiritual and personal experiences in my life, many of those mountaintops have a dark valley just beneath them. Because I had sinned, I had blown it, I had embarrassed myself, I had defied God, I had shown my I had acted as if I didn't know Jesus at all on some occasions. I had hurt and grieved others, but when I asked their forgiveness, those godly, tender-hearted Christians were looking out for me, and they were quick to extend forgiveness. They became to me a good picture of the way that God in Christ forgives me. And Jesus says the burden of forgiveness rests on every Christian that has been forgiven. If God forgave you, now the responsibility is, you, is yours for you to forgive others. But many times we would rather hold a grudge. Many times we would prefer to do what God himself will not do and remind people of what they've done. Often, especially in marriage, especially in the closeness of a family, People forget what the Bible says about love that keeps no record of wrongs, and they hold something back. And at just the right time, they'll pull that out and say, ah, here we go again. And they remind people of things that Jesus nailed to the cross when he died for our sins. Jesus says, you are not to live this way. One of your commitments as a disciple of Christ is that you are quick to welcome home the repentant. The point of us looking out for each other is fellowship, is restoration. It's us walking together in the path in faithfulness to Jesus. And the disciples didn't like it maybe any better than we did. Look at verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith, which is a very polite way of saying, you've got to be kidding Jesus said, if your brother sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The disciples said, the apostles rather, say to the Lord, increase our faith. 
It's a very interesting, it's a polite request, but there's a little bit of pushback or at least there's an admission, we can't do that. And here's what the Lord has dealt with about with me this week. If I'm withholding forgiveness from another believer, it's because I don't trust the Lord. Forgiveness releases that person from their debt and trusts them to God. If I don't want to do that, it's because I think to myself, deep in myself, even if I wouldn't verbalize it, if I forgive you, you're going to keep getting away from it. You're going to keep getting away with it. This kind of wrongness, this kind of nonsense is going to continue. I'm not going to be vindicated. I won't be taken care of. Consequently, I'm not forgiving you. That's the temptation. And the apostles were exactly right. They put their finger on the heart of the problem when they heard from the Lord what discipleship, what Christianity really meant, that forgiveness was to be this frequent and this gracious. They said, Lord, help us believe you enough to do that. And look at the answer. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed smallest seed in their world, just a little speck. If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. I think what Jesus is really getting specific with his examples. Mustard seed, mulberry tree, why is that? Well, the mustard seed was, had the smallest seed known to them, probably. It was like a little freckle. And the mulberry tree, which they all would have been very familiar with, was famous for this deep, extensive root system. What's Jesus saying? If you trust God just a little, you can do incredible things. A little faith can do big things. And very often when I've heard pastors teach this verse, they'll take this one specifically out of context and start talking about Christians doing big, spectacular, flashy, visible things out in the world. Jesus is saying you don't need great faith if you put any trust, if you have even a small amount of trust in God, you can do big things like forgive the people who have wronged you. See, there's a certain kind of selfishness even among Christianity, and we have to be very careful with this in the digital age. Sometimes people aren't willing to act like Christians unless a camera is rolling to make sure that the rest of the world knows about it. One of the biggest miracles that will come in in the lives of some of you is when you put what little faith you may have, you put it in your great big sovereign God and you release repentant people from their sins. You forgive them of the debt they have with you. When you do that, when you add to your protective view of others that you will do your best to keep them from sin and when they do and they want to come back to you and come back to God, you'll be quick to forgive them. You'll bring heaven on earth into your home. We'll have heaven on earth in this family of faith, which is our local church, if we look out for each other and we forgive one another. And then Jesus closed with perhaps the most intense of these three commitments. Will any of you, he says, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, 
Come at once and recline at the table. In other words, Jesus says, imagine you have a servant. Someone's working for you. They're out in the field. When they're done for the day, are you going to turn around and be their waiter? Are you going to take care of them? Remember, he's in the first century world, very vertical society. No, Jesus says, that doesn't happen. Will he not rather say to him, to his servant, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And this is a little bit, we're taking a step back in time and history. This is one of the challenges in studying the Bible. We're talking about first century culture, but it's not so different from our own in this respect. If someone is in charge, and if someone is paying and caring for another for a service rendered, the roles don't flip. In this case, the, the boss he expects to be served. That is the cultural understanding. That's the contract. That's the agreement. Why is Jesus bringing this up? The point for us is in verse 10. That was just a story to remind them of an everyday occurrence. In the first century, there were masters and servants. There were bosses and servants. And the boss is always going to be the boss. Here's the word for us drawn from that very simple example. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. It's a rare verse in Scripture and a rare thought in 21st century American Christianity. Jesus has been addressed here as Lord. Verse 6, the Lord said. These are his disciples. These are his chosen apostles, those who are going out in his name. Now he's using a picture drawn from their life to remind them of a very simple thing. He really is the Lord. He really is in charge. He really is the boss. That simple example was meant to remind the disciples that loving and sacrificially is as he is, and he is literally going to love them to the point of death. He's in charge, and his suffering and his sacrifice don't change his lordship one bit. In fact, they only magnify it. They only make the story of grace that the Lord would die for sinners and servants like us all the more glorious. But please, Christian, make no mistake. If you are a Christian, Jesus is not your servant. He is your Lord. He's the boss. He's in charge. And what that means is our third and final commitment to Christ and to one another is we're humble. We are cultivating and walking in continually a spirit that seeks ever greater humility toward the Lord, and we don't expect to be thanked for obeying Jesus. See the picture? It's a rare one. It's a shocking one. Not many best-selling Christian books have been written on those last few verses. If Jesus is Lord, not a life coach, 
Though he makes himself and calls himself also our friend and brother, he is both of those things, but he is the Lord. He is the King of glory. He's the creator of all things. He's the only one who could die for sin and cover it all, and he is the only one who did. For all these reasons, he is our Lord and God. And that means, cross point, we do what he says. And when we do it, we say... We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. You ever do something right and then step back and wait for the applause? Hope somebody noticed? Maybe it's happened to you. I've felt it in my own heart. I'll do something kind for someone, and as I'm walking away, I'll think to myself, I hope they notice how cool that was. They've really been loved. They've really been cared for. I hope they notice. I hope I'm getting credit for this. Jesus says in that moment, the credit's gone. Because in that moment, I chose not to do it for them, but to do it for me. Listen, the gospel says so many glorious things. It says that Jesus rewards. It says that Jesus will be in no one's debt, that he will actually reward and bless on earth and in heaven every single loving thing that is done in his name. But make no mistake, the foundational reality of that is we're servants. We're his brothers. We're adopted into the family of God. We are actually the friends of Christ, but we're not like him. We are near him and we are loved by him, but we are not like him because we will forever be in his debt. He will always be the Lord. So we, Christians, band together by the grace of God, sang with the apostles, Lord, increase our faith, and we make these commitments to him. We're protective of one another. We struggle and sacrifice to keep one another from sin. When someone sins, we're quick to forgive and we're humble. We do those things and everything else that Jesus asks simply because he's the Lord and he deserves it. And every act of obedience, whatever it is, loving, serving, giving, forgiving, everything we do in obedience to him was only our duty in the first place. We keep these commitments to each other because we're committed to him. We're Christians. We're disciples. We have a Savior who loved us, who died on the cross for us, who took his life back and left an empty tomb so that we could have eternal life. We owe him all of this. We love each other and we are committed to one another because we're committed to Christ. We're committed to him. So one more question. With you and your own walk with Jesus, have you been properly protective, especially mom, dad, ministry leader? Have you looked out for the well-being for the soul of others? Are you quick to forgive? Are you quick to welcome them back when they recognize they've done wrong and they want to return? And are you falling into the so common trap of Christianity, especially public ministry, of expecting to be thanked and forgetting that everything you do for the Lord is for love and it's not to be praised. It's actually an obligation that he purchased with his own blood. Wherever you might be stumbling, wherever you might be 
lacking in your faith and your obedience to Christ. Let's take a moment now, quiet our hearts before him, and say to him, Lord, help me look out for the love and the good of others. If there's unforgiveness in my heart, let me extend your forgiveness. And whatever you ask me to do, help me do it humbly, because I am your servant. And if you don't know Christ, and I know people are watching this broadcast because they hope and they pray that there is a God who listens, He does. I've told you in and out of this sermon, I've tried to weave it through the story of our need. We're sinners, we're lawbreakers. We were rebels in the sight of God, but Jesus overcame all of that with His own righteousness, and He waits today to welcome home the repentant and place you as a beloved child in the family of God, if only you will turn to him and ask his forgiveness. Confess your sin and ask him to save and forgive you. He will. If you do that this, this morning, we'd love to know about it. Let us know through the, through the internet. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to send another Bible or Christian materials out to help you take your first steps of faith. For those of us who are disciples, Let's turn to the Lord now and remain committed to each other because we're so committed to him. Lord, help me do just what I've preached. Help my brothers and sisters, wherever they are, across this community and across the world. Help us look out for each other. Do what it takes to safeguard the love and the trust that our loved ones have in you. Help us to be quick to forgive each other. And Lord, whatever you ask us to do, however sacrificial it is, remind us of this core truth. When it's all done, we should never praise ourselves, congratulate one another because we are only your servants. We've only done what you asked. Help us to live and love this way. I ask this in your name, the sweet name of Jesus, and Crosspoint, wherever we're gathered, said, amen. God bless you. Once more, if you're not getting my church-wide email, that is a vital link of communication. If you need a prayer, if you need service, if you need groceries, whatever this church is doing, and we're doing quite a bit to help and encourage and come alongside people in need, whatever we can do for you, please let us know. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. I look forward to seeing you again online.